16 today, as we continue right along with Abram, who will shortly become Abraham. So what we've seen so far is that Abram's been given a promise, a promise from God. Uh, Specifically, he's been promised descendants and land, the land of Canaan. And so now what we're going to see is Abram in a time of waiting, waiting for God to fulfill what he has said he will. And what Abram does is instead of waiting patiently, instead of doing as God has asked, he starts planning on how he can do this himself. This is what God has promised me, so I'm going to do the work to make sure this happens. And Abram doesn't seem to realize that when God says something is going to happen, God is the one who makes it happen, not man. God will do the work, not man. And so what we're going to see today is what happens when man plans versus what happens when God plans. And we're going to be able to compare those two. So we start with a time of waiting, 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. We do not know how long time has passed. We don't know how much time has gone forward here. But it's been a period of time, and there is still no promised descendant. There is still no promised descendant. That's all Abram wants. That's all they're looking forward to. That's what their life is grilled towards. How can we get this promised descendant? And I think we find ourselves often in these times of waiting as well. These times of waiting and asking, is this really what I meant to do? Is to sit here and wait? I ask myself that all the time at the library, especially on those days when I have maybe 20 people come in my door. Really? This is what I'm being asked to do with my life? To sit at this desk and not help anyone, not do anything? Really? So we have to look at what God wants from us. And what he wants is patience. Patience. Merriam-Webster defines patience and it has two parts. The first part, Merriam defines Webster as bearing pains or trials. So first of all, it's only going to be patient if you're going through something difficult. If you're waiting for something you really want. If something is really difficult, then is when you have to show patience. I'm not showing much patience sitting in front of the TV enjoying myself. That's not patience at that point in time. It will be difficult. The second part of the definition is calmly and without complaint. It's not patience if we are anxious and we're complaining the whole time about it. Now, of course, my wife will tell you that I'm the most patient person alive. I never complain or whine about anything. <laughs> right? You know, I've, I've often believed that I come up here and do this because I have to learn these messages far more than anyone else. I have to learn this. That's hard. This is the hardest thing I think God asks us to do is to be patient, is to wait. Now, it's not enough to just wait, to just wait because we have to be obedient as well. We can't just be patient, we also have to be obedient. We have to do as God has asked us to do. Being patient, being patient is not an excuse for us to sin. That doesn't give us license to go do whatever we want to do. We still need to be faithful in the things God has given us, the little things, like sitting at a library all day, not knowing what I'm supposed to be doing with myself. We have to be obedient in that patience. Now, patience ends, and we act. But when we act, when we act, we do so for God's glory, not our own. And when we act, we do so with God's peace and God's joy. If we don't go in God's peace and God's joy, 
We really should be questioning if we should be acting. We should have peace and joy. We don't act knowing that these things are going to cause strife and problems. Now, as a small aside, I'm going to step away from what I'm teaching today and just give a small aside, because this is something I think a lot of us struggle with. When do we know God's will? When do we know? I've read multiple books about it, trying to discern God's will for my life as well, as I sit in the library doing nothing. I've seen that. All right? I've seen that. So people seek God's will all the time. There are an absolute ton of books about the topic, and I have found five points that I'm taking from John MacArthur that I thought were the most helpful to discern God's will. How do we know if this is what God wants from us? And there are five points that he says. First, be saved. First, be saved. If you do not know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. He is the, only, he is the first thing, the ultimate thing that matters. If we do not know him, nothing else matters. You have to be saved. We won't get anywhere without this one. This is God's ultimate purpose for your life. Know the Lord. Know him. Know Christ. Once you're saved, all right, I'm hoping everyone here has gotten to that point, but once you're saved, be spirit-filled. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Be into the Word constantly. Know what he's telling you. Know what he's asking you. The Lord will speak to you through his Word. I'm always a little suspect when people come and say they heard God tell them something in the shower or on a drive or something like that. That's, that, that's just... Not generally how God speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word. And as you read that word, listen to what he's saying. Listen to what the word is telling you. Listen to it. The Holy Spirit is in you. He is interpreting the word for you, and he's showing you the way he wants you to go. But you have to be connected to him. You have to be connected to the word. Be spirit-filled. Next, the third point for knowing God's will for your life, be sanctified. Be focused on Christ. Your ultimate goal is to be like Christ. Focus not on the stuff around us, but on the stuff above us. Focus on Christ. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Focus on Christ more than yourself, more than our problems. Point four, be submissive. Be willing to serve other people. Look for ways to help someone else. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think of others as more important than you think of yourself. And finally, the fifth point, be willing to suffer. God is not always going to put you where you are comfortable, where you want to be. I never would have thought in a million years that he'd have me get up in front of a bunch of people and say things. This is not who I am. I am a shy, quiet introvert. This is totally unnatural for me. But I do it because I think this is God's will for my life. This is what I've been able to find through these five points. Seek his peace. Remember, we act in his peace before we act in our comfort. But our principle here, going back to the Bible, going back to our teaching today, our principle is that when we find, or we will all find ourselves in a time of waiting, in a time of waiting, we must stay faithful to what God has given us, and we must trust that God knows what is best. We must trust that God knows what is best. This time of waiting is used to refine and sanctify us, to make us more dependent and more reliant on him, and to make us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. 
Now we're going to see man's plan for the covenant. So Abram is sick of this time of waiting, and so they're going to do something about it. Uh, instead of patience, we're going to see scheming. Let's look at verses uh, 1 and then through 4. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dealt twelve, dealt dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went to Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So instead of patient obedience, patiently waiting in obedience, we see scheming. We notice that this is not based on God's word. She says the word perhaps. Perhaps this will happen. Perhaps. When God says something, it is sure. God's word is sure. Man's word is not. Perhaps. That's not a good reason to act. Perhaps this will happen. We see that this is not to God's glory. I may receive children. I might get something out of this. These are selfish motivations. These are selfish motivations. God works selflessly. He has us work selflessly for the betterment of others. We see that this is not in faith. Hagar is not Abram's wife. She's not. That's not marriage as God has set it up and ordained it in the Bible. And just because this is a common practice in the ancient world doesn't make it right, doesn't make it okay. This is not what God has ordained. It is sinful in God's eyes. What they do here is sin. And this is not joy and peace. It does not bring joy and peace. She becomes despised in her eyes. We start to have fighting. The three, Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, begin fighting with each other. This is now family drama. And this drama isn't going away anytime soon. He's created problems that will reverberate for generations and are still being felt today because he refused to wait in patience. He refused to wait in obedience. Excuse me. <laughs> and instead of bringing peace, this brought fighting. Look at 4 through 6. Uh, she came despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So instead of bringing peace, this brought fighting. Sarai blamed her husband and hated Hagar. This always kind of bothered me, because this whole thing was Sarai's idea in the first place. Right? So she refuses to accept any responsibility for this. This is his fault. And, to be fair, he is the leader of the family. That's the man's job. He should have said no. He should have turned her down. That was his job. He chose wrong. And he continues to choose wrong here because he abdicates his responsibilities as leader. He says, I'm not dealing with this. She's your servant. You deal with it. Again, his job is the leader. He should be fixing these issues. He never should have done these issues in the first place. But this is Sarai's idea. He should have said no, and now he refuses to fix the issue. He refuses to sit down and have discussions with them. And Hagar runs away. 
She runs away. She's actually headed south. She's headed back to Egypt. She's headed back to what is home for her. And I want us all to be abundantly clear here, abundantly clear that none of these are the right answers. They're all doing the wrong thing. Every one of them is wrong. Every one of them. Sarai refuses to take responsibility for her idea. Abram refuses to lead like a man should. Hagar runs from her problems. None of those are the answers. And the real problem is Abram. Is Abram, who God has spoken to specifically and told him what he expected, and he should be the leader. And this is hard. This is something I've had to come to a lot with. It does rest on the man. The man is the leader. They're all wrong. They're all in the wrong. And so we get to Hagar in the wilderness. We're going to read 7 through 16. Now the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well, is, the well was called Beer Labore. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bored. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. To Abram, excuse me, to Abram. So really what we see here is actually a really cool moment. Hagar actually meets a pre-incarnate Christ. This is God on earth before Christ came to earth. And we can kind of prove this one. We can prove this one. First of all, he is, of course, separate from the Father. The Father is in heaven. This one is on earth. Okay? He uses the first person, I. He says, I will multiply your descendants. I will do that. So the only one who has the ability to do that is God. Angels don't have the ability to do that. Only God has the ability to do that. And at the very end, Hagar recognizes him as God. And she tells him, she says, I have seen the one who sees me. I have seen God. And the angel doesn't stop her or keep her from saying that. He accepts that. So we kind of see a pre-incarnate Christ. And he actually shows up throughout the Old Testament in other spots as well. Just a real interesting moment that we see Christ. Again, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can see him here in the Old Testament specifically. And he tells her that her son will be Ishmael. Ishmael means God who hears me or God hears me. That's what the meaning of the word is. And he is considered the father of the Muslim nation. The Muslim and Jews are ancient enemies, absolutely despise each other and hate each other. And you don't have to go far back in history to see that the Muslims kind of set themselves up as enemies of everyone. As he says he will, every man's hand against him. Doesn't take us long to look back at 9-11. Thomas Jefferson actually had writings about the warnings about the Muslims. We go even back all the way to the Crusades and how they fought for the Holy Land. These, these actions, Abram's actions, have generational consequences still being felt today. Still being felt today. But what we need to realize as well 
is that God doesn't blame or condemn anyone for these actions. He doesn't blame or condemn anyone. He sees them all, Abram, Sarai, Agar, and Ishmael, with love and compassion. With love and compassion. That doesn't mean he condones these actions. That doesn't mean they're okay or that they're right. They are still sinful, but he sees them with love. He works. God works. And his plans succeed in spite of what these people do. In spite of what these people do. That's how great our God is. And our first principle to understand here is that our time of waiting is just as important as any time of work God gives us. Waiting is just as important as the work he gives us. And the consequences of impatience are felt for generations, not just through the Muslims, but through his own family. Isaac will also grow up with some weird family drama that stems from this moment. Jacob will have some weird family drama that stems from this moment. The 12 will do some goofy things because they can look back at their grandfather and say, he, their great-grandfather, and say, well, he did it. Family strife and contention will stick with Isaac, Jacob, and the Twelve. And it all stems from this moment. All the, way point, all the way to the point of to this day, the Muslims continue to be a hard-to-reach people that God loves and that we are called to serve. And people who do go and serve them do amazing things and are making amazing inroads there. So that's man's plan for the covenant. And I hope we can see there that it's a failure, a huge, epic failure, the kind of thing that you would film, put on the internet, and everyone would laugh at, because it's such an embarrassing failure when man plans. But now we come to God's plan, and God's going to tell Abram what he expects and what he wants done. And it starts with new names. Everyone's going to get new names here. The first is God. God gets a new name. Right, look at verse 17, or chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. When Abram was 99 years old, so realize there's been a 13-year period of silence. A 13-year period of silence. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. So the word God here is actually translated as El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And it means God who can meet any need. The God who can meet any need. And what God tells Abram is that revelation brings responsibility. Revelation brings responsibility. You will walk before me. You will go in front of me. We don't walk with God. We walk before God. We walk out in front of him. We go before him so that we can declare him to the nations. When people see us, they see the God who is coming to us. We are his herald. And so when Abram sins, when we sin, we don't hurt our relationship with God. We hurt God's relationship with everyone else because we're not giving a proper representation of who God is. 
We damage his relationship. We damage our witness for Christ. We struggle to witness for him. And that's typically, you can see that. If you've ever talked with someone who is antagonistic towards Christ, or you spend five minutes looking at comments on Christian videos, right? I saw one yesterday. They don't point to God. They don't point to the Bible. They don't point to Jesus. They point to you. And they say Christians are the problem. I don't want to be a Christian because of all the evils Christians do. And to be honest, it's because they have. There have been a lot of evil done in God's name. We can't deny that. We're fallible humans. And it hurts their witness. It hurts our ability to witness. It's hard to herald God. It's hard to show the world how great and awesome and mighty and powerful he is when we're living in the mud and in the dirt and in the dumps with everyone else. We're his herald. Revelation, knowledge of God, brings that responsibility that how we act, what we do, reveals God to the rest of the world. God's revelation gives us responsibilities. And so Abram's going to be given a new responsibility. His new name is Abraham. Let's look at 5 through 8. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. <laughs> Abraham means father of a multitude, father of many, father of many. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Anyone help with VBS before? Okay. Right? That's where it comes from. He's father of a multitude, father of many. And we can see that at least three nations have already sprung from him. The Muslims, the Jews, and Christians. He is going to be the father of many nations. That's three. And this is going to be done in the father's power, in God's, in God's power, not in Abraham's power. This will be what God has ordained to be done. And we see that as God shows him these things, he shows him that different children are shown differently through God's metaphors. We've already seen that God showed Abram the stars. And he said, your descendants will outnumber the stars. Well, later he'll talk about dust. And your descendants will be more than the dust on the earth. Right? And he says something along those lines. Well, when God refers to dust, he's referring to earthly children. Specifically the Jews and the Arabs. Earthly children. But when he refers to stars, we can see spiritual children. Children of the heavens. Christians. Two different types of children that God reveals. And now, 4,000 years later, we can see what God was talking about. 4,000? 6,000 years. Sorry, I'll look that up later. God refers to stars. We see Abram's spiritual children. Christians. Us. People who are here today. And the next set is the Abrahamic covenant. What God tells Abraham to do as his part of this covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for you, 
You shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he he who is born in your house or bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham's side of this is circumcision. Circumcision. And it was not unheard of in ancient times. There were people who did it. But the key is that the only reason the the Jews do it is because God told them to. The only reason the Jews do it is because that's what God told them to do. The Jews wouldn't do it if it wasn't commanded, and God wouldn't have commanded it if the Jews were already doing it. That's the key. God told them to do it, and so they are expected to do it. But what we need to see here is that this is a largely symbolic act. This is symbolic. First, it's a symbol of obedience. You do it, the Jews do it, because God told them to do it. God told them to do it. It's a symbol of obedience, similar to communion for us. Communion. There's no literal significance in communion, which is why the elements can change. We don't have to serve you know, white bread versus wheat bread versus rye bread. We don't have to serve wine versus juice. Those elements can change. They can change on which Sunday we do it on, or if we do it on Sunday at all. Those are all things different churches will do differently because those pieces aren't what's important about communion. What's important about communion is the heart that we go into communion with. What's important about it is when we take that bread and that wine and we realize this is Jesus. This is what he did for us. He gave us his his blood and his body. And we reflect on that. The elements are not what's important. What's important is the symbol, the act of what we're doing. The act of us doing it is what's important. And what this means, and this is going to raise a lot of hackles, especially if anyone has a Catholic background, what this means is that taking communion does not save anyone. Meant, it was never meant to impart salvation. You are not saved because you take communion. It's a symbol, it's an act that we do to remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us. In the same way, circumcision is for the Jews. In the same way, circumcision is for the Jews. Second, we see a symbol of separation. This is clearly going to make the Jews different from the people around them. The other Canaanite nations are not doing this. The Jews are. It separates them. It says, we are different kind of like what baptism does for us. Baptism. It marks Christians as different from everyone else. I have been buried and raised again with Christ. It's a symbol. It's a symbol that makes us different from what other people do. And again, we're going to raise some habits, right? Because being baptized does not impart salvation. 
We can debate the elements, and those, those debates rage through churches, and churches split over them, and those are, in my opinion, silly debates to have. It doesn't matter if we dunk, or if we sprinkle, or if we do it inside, or if we do it outside, or if we do it on this day, or that day, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Because what matters is the act. And it's a beautiful, wonderful act of us being buried and raised again. But it's not what saves us. It's not what saves us. The specific elements are not important. But it's a beautiful act that we've been given that shows the world that we're different. That we're different. And also, finally, third, this is a symbol of spiritual cleanliness. It goes to the very beginning of sin. Original sin. The root of original sin is when Adam ate the apple. And so God says we're going to cut off a piece of the male's seed. Cut off a piece of the male seed. It's a symbolic cleanly act. And every person who has ever been born has been born of a male seed. Except for one. Jesus, right? He was not born of a male. Mary was a virgin when she gave birth. She was a virgin because Christ was not born with original sin. He was not born with a sinful nature like everyone else, like we are. So this is a sign of spiritual cleanliness. This does not make the Jews clean, but it's a symbol for them of what they should be looking for. And that's what we have to get through here. That's what we have to get through because the important thing to realize is that circumcision was never meant to impart salvation. Just like communion, just like baptism. The Jews were not saved, they were not righteous before God because they were circumcised. Which is why when the Jerusalem, the Council of Jerusalem came in and Acts, they were able to say, you don't have to be circumcised anymore. Because that wasn't the important thing. That wasn't the important part. They were not righteous before God because they were circumcised. Just like Christians, we are not saved by works. Baptism and communion are beautiful. Beautiful, wonderful acts that still will bring a tear to my eye. And I still remember my baptism and when I did it and how excited I was. And I was crying because it was so awesome. But that's not what saved me. Doing that is not what saved me. Baptism does not impart salvation. Communion does not impart salvation. Going to church, following the law, giving to the poor are not what imparts salvation. None of these things make us righteous before God. They are symbolic acts to remind us of who we are in Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. Totally and completely and only through Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. That is what matters. It is later on. The Jewish leaders and now Christian leaders have decided to make this issue you have to do these things to be saved. That was wrong. That was never God's intention. Abram believed in God and it was accounted him as righteousness. Abram was saved by grace through faith, not because he was circumcised. And we are saved by grace, by God's grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ, not because of my works, not because of anything I can do. These are symbolic acts. 
symbolic of obedience and separation. And now we go back. We go back to names with Sarai, verses 15 and 16. Then God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Sarai becomes Sarah. Sarah means princess. It means princess. Right away, telling Abram, how he should treat his wife. Telling her, telling him, that what he did to her was wrong. A reminder to Abram that what he did, how he chose to treat his wife was wrong. Our wives, men, our wives are princesses that we treat with the utmost respect and love and adoration because they are our princess. She is also an example of Christian motherhood. An example of Christian motherhood. Having children brought her great joy. Having children should bring us great joy. This is also the first mention that the covenant will go through Sarah. Finally, Sarah has a role to play. She didn't know that. They didn't know this before. They thought maybe Hagar was a good idea. And God tells them, no, it'll happen through your wife. Through the wife that I gave you, that I ordained for you. It'll happen through her. It's the first they realize that. And we have a final new name. The final new name, verses 17 through 22. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abram, Abraham. <laughs> Couldn't say. Isaac, the promised child. The promised child that he's been waiting for for 23 years at this point in time. The promised child is now Isaac. Isaac means laughter. Laughter. Because look what Abraham did. He fell on his face and he laughed. Later on when they tell Sarah, she'll laugh. They laugh at God and say, you're crazy. This will never happen. It can't happen. They laugh at him. And even later on, when she has the child, the Bible tells us that everyone will laugh with Sarah. They will laugh with her in joy because of this miracle child. Laughter. Laughter. And what we see is kind of interesting here because Abraham actually argues for Ishmael. And he says, God, why can't it be Ishmael? Abraham loved this kid. He accepted him. He loved him. And he wanted it to be him. But Ishmael was never meant to be the covenant child. I'm explaining a lot, a lot of symbols today. And this is another one. Right? What you have is a pattern. A pattern in the Old Testament that you see kind of throughout the Old Testament. And that the firstborn, the child who is firstborn, is fleshly born. 
They're born of this world. And we can see this all the way back to Cain. Cain, and then Japheth, Ishmael, Esau, Reuben, all firstborn. And they run a spectrum of how good and bad they are, but they're all fleshly born. Cain was a murderer, not going to cover the covenant. Japheth wasn't so bad, right? He just spread out, was part of the Gentiles. Hey, not so bad. Esau is going to be fit to anger. He'll have multiple wives. Reuben tries to save Joseph. That's good, right? But he also tries to usurp his father and loses his birthright because of it. So the firstborn, the firstborn doesn't mean they are evil people. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily any more evil than anyone else, but it's symbolically significant that they are not God's chosen line. The secondborn is God's chosen line. The secondborn is typically the spiritually born. Again, this doesn't mean they're good people. There's only been one good person. That was Jesus. But these are the ones that God has chosen. Abel and his replacement Seth, they gave to God wholeheartedly. Shem is the line of the Jews. He was the secondborn. Isaac carried the covenant, but he actually favored Esau and wanted to go against what God was telling him. Jacob carried the covenant, but he was a trickster and lied and schemed his whole life. Joseph saved the family, but he was proud, and he knew it. Being secondborn doesn't make them perfect people, but it makes them God's chosen line. This is, of course, a symbol. A symbol. Because Jesus Christ says we must be born again. We must be born again. This is the second birth. It can't come through the first birth. And this is why Ishmael is not given a new name. He's fleshly born. He's the firstborn. And the flesh cannot change. Our flesh does not change. Our flesh must be put to death on the cross with Jesus Christ. And we must be born again. We must be born again. And that's our principle. Our principle here is that we must also put aside our fleshly natures and seek the spiritual rebirth of Jesus Christ, which is what God has given us for the covenant now, Jesus Christ. We are not fixed. We're not healed. We're not made well. We are reborn. We are new creations, reborn into the covenant promises of God. And he gives us new names, new hearts, and new lives. And through that rebirth, we must seek to glorify God by living blamelessly so that we can witness to the lost. That is our responsibility. Our lives are the herald. As we go forward, we're to say, no matter what happens in life, no matter what happens to me, I'm joyful. I'm taken care of. I am loved. I am content. And others look at us and they say, wow, look at what God has done for him. And they learn God will do the same for them. God will do the same for them to all who will come to him through Christ. So in conclusion, we can see man's plan for the covenant versus God's plan. When man plans, we create sin and fleshly desire. It is utter failures. We fight, we mislead, and we fail to act as God desires. But when we wait, when we are patient, and when we patiently wait in obedience, when we wait and allow God to work, 
He fulfills his promises perfectly. He fulfills his promises perfectly. We must be willing to wait on the Lord in obedience. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.